Hello there and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined tonight by Craig. Hello. And Scott. Hello. On September 30th, 1955, a Porsche crashed in Paso Robles, north of Los Angeles. The driver, a 24-year-old man, was killed. Tragic, but not especially remarkable. Yet, numerous musicians, from Bonnie Tyler, Van Morrison and the Eagles, to Taylor Swift, the Goo Goo Dolls and Scouting for Girls, have sung about that driver. Madonna talked about him being on the cover of a magazine, while Don McLean talked of Bob Dylan having borrowed a quote from him as he was lamenting the day the music died. Books have been written and films made about him, and uncountable others reference him, obliquely or directly. He was an actor, but with only three credited parts to his name in films released between March 1955 and November 1956. Yet he became one of the most iconic figures of the mid-20th century. That driver's name was James Byron Dean, a name that has a lot of cachet even now. So much so, in fact, that in recent ghoulish news, he is to be resurrected as some sort of unethical digital zombie in upcoming (laughs) Vietnam War film Finding Jack. (laughs) The worst type of zombie. (laughs) Actually, it's about ethics and zombie making. (laughs) (laughs) Deary me. Mm -hmm. For someone with such a scant body of work, he cast a remarkable shadow for the half-century following his death, and I thought, therefore, it would be quite interesting to look at the work of James Dean, the actor, having only seen Rebel Without a Cause and that many moons ago. I've wanted to explore Dean's work for a while, and that recent news item made this quite a timely topic. So, with that said, we're going to have to answer three questions. Were those three films any good? Secondly, was Dean's performance in those films good? And lastly, how ethical is the creation of a CGI puppet of a dead man? <laughs> well, actually we can skip that last one, it's obviously it's exceptionally <laughs> unethical and it's not to be countenanced, so we can just move on to our usual fare, films. <laughs> Either of you anything to mention before we start? I think uh, you'd seen even less than I have, which was a mm. film I barely remembered. Yes, can I exactly. just say that never, never throughout an intro have I had to bite my bottom lip, the more sarcastic of my two lips, quite so much. <laughs> <laughs> just in case you wanted an early indication as to which way this is going from my corner of the country. <laughs> it's good that you have your lips segregated. So, <laughs> fits in with the time frame that we're talking about here. So Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Separate Nico. Separate that Nico. Took, a, took a second Good lips to on land. Both sides. <laughs> <laughs> no bottom lips allowed. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, no, I. Um, uh, this is a huge blind spot for me. Um, clearly not as big as the blind spot in his uh, his car that day. Um, no, uh, I, I had not really seen any of James Dean's works other than sort of little clips and snippets here and there throughout the years that you one accumulates by osmosis through simply having an interest in film and catching up with stuff on television that revolves around film. So. Uh, yeah, I was I was very much aware of of this being a thing in which I, I was unable to hold a conversation really, and I had put a lot of good faith in the the stock of James Dean, someone who made three films, only one of which was released before he died, who's had such a cultural impact, can't surely uh, be without merit in his craft. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> so. Yes, I mean, one one goes into this assuming that one will be uh, thunderstruck by the magnetic 
screen presence of one of the greatest actors of his generation who was up for parts alongside the likes of Brando and Newman. Um, one can only imagine that he would be um, as accomplished um, an actor as those to have earned the credits that he did and it simply wouldn't be some sort of ghoulish celebrity death cult surrounding him um, <laughs> and his death at an early age Don't so, spoil it for the kiddies um, <laughs> Yeah, but well, we'll talk about it as we go on I suppose Yeah, likewise, I've seen nothing um, basically I've seen images of him, I've seen the poster of him uh, a lot and I've seen a lot I just want to, I just want to avoid images of him Scott, which is oh, kind yeah. of part of the point here That is. denim jacket and peering out from beneath those yeah, dashing hooded eyelids. Yes, it's not denim, but um, oh well, that's what well, doesn't actually matter. Yes, uh, and was probably <laughs> like, the mattered enough for you to mention it, you prick. <laughs> 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 and probably the, the, the most crushing disappointment is when you do actually see him in that jacket. The jacket's foul. Uh, looks much better in black and white than in colour. Mm. So, yes. yes, I suppose should we crack on? Yes. yes. Uh, so can we get this over and done with? <laughs> We're going to begin with East of Eden, based on the John oh. Steinbeck novel. And Craig, I believe you're telling us about that. Aye, John Steinbeck knew a thing or two about books. Uh, <laughs> you may have heard of some of his works. <laughs> One of them, East of Eden, was his self-proclaimed masterwork, a 600-page or thereabouts behemoth, chronicling the interwoven affairs of two families in California's Salinas Valley, round a run-up to the First World War. Uh, revered and lauded throughout the literary world, East of Eden would clearly be a great prize and career statement for the director talented enough to marshal its adaptation for the screen. Uh, three years after selling his buddies down the Sewanee in front of McCarthy's House Committee on Un-American Activities, uh, <laughs> Elia Kazan was the man deemed fit for the job. I, I'm still... I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, <laughs> why, why that man was the, in the aftermath of that. Um, never mind. Um, and after screen testing the likes of Brando and Newman, as I mentioned before, he settled on James Dean for the lead of Cal Trask, troubled son of Adam, a successful generational farmer, and brother of Aaron, the young star of the family. The boys have grown up believing their mother to be dead, uh, although we eventually learn that this is not the case. Um, but that's of little consequence. Narrowing the source novel's influence to its final thirds, uh, or thereabouts, again, and set exclusively in the period immediately during World War I, the movie begins with Cal riding a train roof from Salinas through the mountains to the town of Monterey, whereupon he stalks a middle-aged woman through the streets to a brothel and starts throwing stones at the building. Uh, so far, so David Lynch. I thought I was, uh, I was really tired when I started watching this movie, and I wondered that I wasn't having some sort of weird fever dream. I actually think now that this is perhaps the best part of the film um, because at least at that stage I was left wondering um, whether or not this character was actually an absolute raging bell end um, or if there was any sort of reasonable reason for his actions. Um, the explanation for this is withheld at this point and Cal returns home to harangue brother Aaron and his fiancée Abra for a bit by acting like a general dick. Meanwhile... Dad Adam feels he and his sons have benefited greatly from the people of California and in an attempt at giving something back he invests massively in the new technology of refrigeration, dreaming of a day he can ship fresh lettuce far and wide <laughs> Unfortunately, some railroad trouble means Adam takes a bath on that veg and subsequently the money invested in the equipment. Not to worry, as Cal decides, actually not unwisely, that the way to earn his father's respect is to invest in growing beans, a commodity that will certainly skyrocket in value should America enter the war. 
Cal's relationship with his father, the emotional core of the movie, would best be described as tense, though on the evidence presented throughout the opening reels of the movie, it is incredibly difficult not to agree with Adam's perspective on his son, what with his every action being that of a petulant, emotionally retarded proto-emo who displays a bizarre <laughs> penchant for infantile histrionics, including pressing and rolling his face against various fixtures and fittings like a horny cat any time he talks to an adult. I might be missing something here, but if this is brooding intensity, I am baffled as to why the seven-year-old me wasn't fighting off hordes of adoring female fans. <laughs> Actually, I'm really confused by this movie in general. It does that thing America has been obsessed with in TV and film where actors in their 20s portray teenagers. Only here... Cal behaves like a preteen, but then we see them sitting in a bar drinking, which, and I've done my research, in post-1981 pre-prohibition California, makes them at least 18. Steinbeck considered Dean here his greatest casting decision, and, only <laughs> and I can only imagine this kind of behaviour must have curried more favour or felt somehow more relatable in the 50s. Um, from where I'm sitting in 2019, it's baffling to think this is considered pivotal both as a movie and as a performance. I thought maybe I was taking crazy pills, what with the 10-star user reviews on various online movie resources, but I did at least find a couple of IMDb users as perplexed as myself. One of those described Dean as rolling around like Gumby, which meant I immediately had to Google Gumby. <laughs> I'm pleased to say I enjoyed my five minutes of YouTube time with an anthropomorphised lump of plasticine infinitely more than two hours with James Dean. <laughs> I'm, completely willing to say, <laughs> I'm completely willing to concede that I'm wrong about all this, but my personal preference for Dean has very definitely been set by this first outing and I have no desire for a second or third I certainly don't intend pointing my finger towards Steinbeck because even in the heavily truncated story presented here there is bountiful narrative potential for an engaging arc certainly there's some technical merit in Kazan's direction but nothing so much as to be considered a landmark and having conducted some half-assed internet research I'm quite happy to let him take the lion's share of the blame on account of what I view to be a great many bad creative decisions maybe my fellow FUDs fared better but actually having just had that brief conversation before this, I'm guessing they probably didn't. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> one thing, it's for me it's actually a bit worse in Rebel Without a Cause, but James Dean is a grown-ass man acting like a small child. And it's worse in Rebel Without a Cause. I think... You, I suspect he's not supposed to be 18 even though he's at the bar because I don't think that's a particularly legal establishment anyway but mm. he's still acting like what 8 years that's exactly yeah, what it's genuinely, it's like genuinely pre-teen yeah, yeah. Uh, 8 yeah. years old he is and it's uh, I can't get over that uh, well he, he can have some powerful deliveries and all that but the fact that he is acting so far away from the age group that he actually is I could never get over he just does not seem like the age group that he should be playing would, and it all seems really be, immature yeah would it, I, I mean obviously I'm I'm not a young woman <laughs> but would that not be the biggest turn off in the world <laughs> you would think so that's only in terms of the, the idea of like you know, young women liking college age guys and stuff too mm. and like, we wouldn't want like a little brat of a boy that he appears to be trying to play here yeah, just bizarre. Sorry for interrupting, Scott. No, uh, I don't think I've got an awful lot else to say about the film, to be honest. it's I, I didn't hate it. Um, it's mm. I, I suppose it's... I read it as a, a somewhat of a retelling of the Cain and Abel story, and I, I guess you yes. can see that, but it, it takes an awfully long time to do anything, and uh, what it is doing is generally doing with characters that are just quite annoying. I don't think there's any characters at all that I liked in there. Um, no. Either 
Cal or his brother or the girlfriend or There's, the father. There is one person I sympathised with throughout the whole film. And you know the scene at the fair where he climbs out of the Ferris wheel because they are all piling Wait. on Albrecht? The German guy. Yeah, and the fight's going on and in the background, the camera cuts to just, there's an old guy sitting there in a rocking chair bobbing back and forwards, puffing on a pipe. And the look of contempt he has for his fellow citizens of Salinas, mm. who, which apparently is a town populated entirely by old white men and 24-year-old um, people acting like 12-year-olds. Um, <laughs> the look of contempt on his face is the only the only point of, of bond between myself and any character in this movie whatsoever. I'm like, that guy gets it. <laughs> yeah, uh, so it seems that I fared considerably better than either of you in this particular uh, episode. I really enjoyed the East of Eden. I, I don't think it was earth-shattering by any means. I don't think it's a classic that everybody ought to see. I just thought it was a solidly entertaining story and I enjoyed it. There were bits and pieces of Dean's performance I liked, even though it was like around the time of that film's release, a lot of people said he's basically just trying to copy Marlon Brando. And I'm watching this film yeah, thinking, yeah, a lot of this time he's basically just trying to copy Marlon Brando but with considerably less talent. Mm-hmm. That said, I still enjoyed him a bit, although um, all of your points about his ridiculous um, physicality in this and the things he's doing, like he's some like six-year-old in dire need of having his bottom smacked for being a naughty boy. Um, <laughs> it's just it's downright creepy in parts. Where he's, uh, where he's, he's spying on uh, Abra and Aaron in the top of the ice shed at the start of the movie and stuff. It's just... Yeah, abs- but- and then the point at the end at which his, his father actually, for the first time, um, I think probably unfairly berates him when he presents him with the money and he rejects it as an offer because he then basically the, the one time that his son's done something and he thinks he's trying to win his father's affection, he's made an and he basically gets accused of war profiteering which is, feels kind of heavy for someone who's supposed to be in their teens and he was just trying to make his trying to win his dad's approval um, yeah. the, his response to that where he all of a sudden starts throwing himself about like in the last episode we spoke about conspiracy theory and that bizarre Looney Tunes escape sequence from the wheelchair he sort of like runs out of the house flailing and going what behaviour is this yeah, I mean, and I'm going to continue to mention it shortly, but you know that um, I've mentioned several times, for example, what you two both mentioned mm. about him, just uh, the adults playing school children, which I've never understood. But yeah, it's this, I don't know if it's the way the character's written or the way it's played, but it's like another 10 years younger than that. Mm. You're absolutely yeah. right, Craig. And like the scene when he's on the swing outside of the house. Yeah. Like, it's like, that sort of thing a wee seven-year-old girl might do. Yeah. You know? Um, it, it's so strange it, I'd, I would love to know more about and maybe the story's out there but I hadn't had time to research this in particular but I would love to know if there's if that was an acting choice or a mm. directing choice or whether it's in the script or perhaps even it's in the original story but I, I'm guessing not that, it doesn't seem very Steinbeck like well this is what annoys me is that I it's got and this is why I, this is why I closed on the on the phrase that I did is that I'm, I, this has to be a directorial choice because um, Dean at this point in his first movie would have had no say creatively whatsoever over his performance he might have had input some of it might have been his idea but Kazan would have had to have signed off on it and it's absolutely his choice to have that performance from that actor and the annoying thing is that there is actually other stuff to enjoy here right I'm being a little bit flippant with some of it but the actual the the point that 
the point for me is that there is probably a, there is probably a pretty decent film here if you replace him with someone else. It's that perform, or even if you get a different performance from Dean, that performance just absolutely destroyed the rest of the film for me. I could not invest in it because it is the strangest, most puerile bull I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> And it is, it's just, it's, it is upsetting because it was probably a perfectly serviceable film other from that. And I might, I might quite have enjoyed it were it not just for that performance. And it's not ofty. It's not ofty. It isn't ofty. It's East of Eden. Um, it's not often I'll say that about a single performance in a film. I can usually see past it, and, but not on this occasion, man. Sorry, I didn't mean to steamroll into your opinion there, Drew. I'm just, it's just made no, me really upset. I mean, I can't necessarily disagree with most mm. of the points you're making, and, and I feel similarly to a lot of them. I just happen to enjoy this, and yeah. I thought there were bits of real promise in Dean's mm. performance. So I'm thinking maybe it is a directorial thing. I'm so always remember. I'm always glad to listen. I, I am I am genuinely glad that you got more out of it than I did. I feel sad well, yeah, I don't for myself. Necessarily want to watch bad films, so no. um, prefer not to. No, I just yeah, I think you're right. It must be directorial because even though. I mean, Dean had been in a few TV series. He'd only had walk-on credits in the other films he'd been in. So it really, what is if you look at it, he's not actually credited. Mm. Um, or walk-on parts, rather. It's the, the tail end of the studio system, so people are still signed to contracts. The studios have all the power. Uh, so yeah, there's not even if Dean was like known in the United States at the time. He'd done various adverts and stuff, doing some modelling that sort of thing. So he was like in the. It wasn't just like he was suddenly dead. Oh, there's James Dean. He, he was known yeah. before that. He was, a, he was part of the public conscience before that. Yeah. So, right. He clearly picked out as an upcoming star. Uh, he looked right for the time, I guess. Mm. But yeah, it's going to be Kazan. It's going to have had all the power there. It's his first feature film, mm-hmm. you know, and a contract to Warner Brothers. So you've got to think it's a, his choice. Which And it's such a strange choice, though. Yeah. Why would you do that? And Kazan was... Uh, I mean, I know Scorsese's cited him as specifically as an influence, hasn't he? In fact, did he not... Does Scorsese not have some hand in... Was it Kazan that he had some hand in a documentary about, or am I thinking of someone else? But he was the point. He was very much like the Scorsese of his time, almost like he wasn't. It wasn't that Kazan was just an up and coming filmmaker at this point. He was very. Yeah, he was already well. established by this point, wasn't he? So he was definitely the one holding the holding the cards. Dearie me. It's, I mean, if it is his choice, or regardless of whose choice it is, actually, mm. it doesn't stop it being uh, equally odd because, and I get your, there's probably some idea that he's somewhat stunted in terms of emotional growth mm. and that there are problems with his upbringing and that they're suggesting there's just a problem with him, you know, inherently evil. He's got that from his mother, who was an evil person. But to play it, so young mm. when he's got to be a love interest for the woman later and to be able to go into business and to be able to be the person that takes care of his dad mm. later on it, it doesn't work it's so strange mm-hmm. and I'm thinking the more I'm thinking about this now the less I'm thinking as well <laughs> while I watched that I enjoyed it so that's Char- fine <laughs> if you had explained it as this character has um, uh, and I don't I don't say this um to be demeaning or flippant um, uh, if you had explained that this character had like developmental issues or something I would have expected you know that that would have been an explanation for this but as someone who's supposed to be a teenager I'm like no at no point in history has a teenager (laughs) acted like this unless they are the strangest little on the planet yeah I mean and you mentioned to the bit when he's in the ice house and mm. he's looking at them and it's like yeah he's one step away from being Billy Bob Thornton's sling blade there 
sort of the, the developmental abnormality. Yeah, it's, it's almost played like that, but there's no suggestion. Otherwise, it's just meant to be. Can I, can I freeze French fried taters here? <laughs> oh, dear. But there you go. Another thing I couldn't get over with all these films, actually, is the underscoring. Um, there's... It's maybe worse than East of Eden, um, although it isn't all of them, but you know, particularly when Dean's getting dragged out of the uh, whorehouse at the start, and while he's rolling around, he's doing a perfectly good job of acting upset there. I don't need the orchestra falling down a pit to, to, to underscore the point as well. Just, <laughs> I, just, uh, I hate underscoring. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, even in our last episode, I was moaning about the underscoring. Yeah. It drives me crazy yeah. as a foreign correspondent. It's... Yeah, curiously, I didn't really notice it all that much in Forest Correspondent, but I did notice it very much in all of these films. Um, and it was, it didn't help. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a thing I do not care for mm-hmm. at all, Scott. So, uh, but Drew, you're not alone. <laughs> there aren't a lot of us who know when to feel sad unless we hear a trumpet. <laughs> Shall we move on? So, fresh from playing a 23 year old high school pupil in East of Eden, James Dean got the <laughs> chance to really stretch himself in his second feature, Nicholas Ray's Rebel Without a Cause, by playing a 23 year old high school pupil, <laughs> but in the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> wow, such different, so range, many acting. <laughs> oh dear. This film is Dean's most famous and provides the most iconic image of the man in his Red Windbreaker. But we first meet Dean's Jim Stark in a tuxedo, having left a shindig at his parents' country club, got drunk and then got arrested, and awaiting interview in the naughty youth section of a Los Angeles police station. Also here at the same time are Natalie Woods and Sal Mineo's actually high school aged Judy and Plato. Before I go on though, it's particularly weird to have a love of interest between somebody who's like 15 or 16 and a 23 year old. Yes, it looks mm. absolutely terrible in this. It, yes. It's the same criticism I had in the last film, but it's just even worse here because he's actually acting. It's people who are the age they're supposed to be and he's <laughs> yes. clearly a decade older than them. He sticks out like <laughs> Prince Andrew at a party. <laughs> 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 Does he sweat much? <laughs> Judy turns out to be a neighbour of Jim's and her talking to him on the way to school the next morning prompts her thuggish boyfriend to target Jim. Maybe. Maybe that's why. Really, it could be anything. As said, thug, Buzz, Corey Allen, exists only to be a threat to Jim and along with his friends has all of the depth of, well, graphene. <laughs> A character with actual depth turns out to be Plato, who actually has cause to rebel, having been abandoned by both his mother and father, and left in the care of the family's maid, Marietta Cante, who clearly loves him, but, well, she's not his family. Lonely and bullied, Plato immediately becomes attracted to Jim, looking to him to be some combination of friend, lover and father, and they begin a friendship. Though it may not last long, as Buzz, apparently bored, starts a knife fight with Jim outside of the planetarium. When that ends prematurely, with a wonderfully brave security guard running away to get a very old man to deal with it instead, (laughs) they agree to take part in a chicken race. Um, For those not familiar with that, that's a really stupid thing you do in stolen cars and racing towards a cliff and the last to jump out. It's a chicken. Sorry, if you had said playing chicken earlier, that would have... Right. I literally... The reason I was baffled when you said chicken race earlier was I was actually picturing people <laughs> racing chickens. It's <laughs> <laughs> sort of a variant of a cockfighter. Yes, I'm sorry. That a genuine mistake on my part. <laughs> For some not entirely believable reason, Buzz is unable to exit his car and ends up inside it. 
at the bottom of a cliff on fire. <laughs> Sick transit, Gloria Buzzy. <laughs> Jim is a troubled but not bad person and wants to turn himself into the police for his part in the death, much to the horror of his considerably less moral parents. He doesn't do so immediately, but his presence at the police station convinces Buzzy's friends that he's turned them in, and they set out to deal with him, setting in motion a chain of events that will end in someone's death. While I suspect this is already pretty obvious, I really don't get Dean's enduring appeal. It's good to know that there is something of substance there, and that he actually had some talent, even if the accusations of aping Marlon Brando do have some merit. Though, as already mentioned, that's more valid of a complaint in East of Eden than Rebel. As Jimmy Stark, Dean gives a sensitive portrayal of a young man tortured by demons he himself doesn't understand and can't identify, even if he's given to mugging and overplaying it at times. Most of them, probably. <laughs> um, though for my money, it's Sal Mineo as Plato that's the standout actor. Though the problems with Rebel Without a Cause lie with the story rather than the acting, though I still found it passable, but no more. It's an incredibly angsty film, and like the teenagers in its story, doesn't seem to know quite what about. It is, in fact, a particularly well-named film. There is evidence of a collective societal hand-wringing at this whole newfangled teenager phenomenon. Won't someone please think of the children who we don't understand and probably want to kill us? <laughs> and the never-out-of-fashion demonising of youth. Though the film seems to point its finger at a failure of parenting, also seen in the discomfort of Judy's father and his difficulty dealing with her becoming a woman, but to be fair, she's super creepy around him, though it may be mutual creepiness, and a... <laughs> and the general decrying of the emasculation of the American man. But for me, it's the incredibly compressed time frame that's the greatest problem. The events of the film take place over roughly 24 hours, and that's barely enough time for all of the depicted events to occur, never mind the relationships that come out of them. While Judy falling in love with Jim is an order of magnitude more believable than Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson doing so in Giant, what with their shared traumatic experience being mixed with at least a little of the chemistry there very conspicuously isn't between Hudson and Taylor, it happens a matter of hours after Judy's boyfriend was chargled in a stolen car. Yeah, she got over that quickly, didn't she? <laughs> a little propriety, please. I mean, it's like, what, it's 90 minutes, two hours or something after yeah. her boyfriend got killed in a car crash? Well, you've got to move fast in these days. Stuart Stern's screenplay deals in some spectacularly sweeping generalisations. All teenagers are monsters, but it's the fault of all parents who are all useless and every child would be much better off if the government was put in charge of their upbringing. <laughs> it also manages to be a very Daily Mail-like film in its attitude to the youths, <laughs> yet also entirely antithetical to this in some of its sympathies. Wait a minute. So seeming to stand for one thing while also at the same time seeming to stand for another diametrically opposed thing? Wow, that really is like the Daily Mail. <laughs> Though, unlike the Daily Mail, I found Rebel Without a Cause tolerable and with some merit. Not unenjoyable, but Rebel Without a Cause does not stand up in 2019, and while American society was very different in 1955, and therefore its resonance then may simply be lost to us now, that doesn't explain the other five decades in between in which this, and Dean's legend, persisted. I'll apparently have to look elsewhere for the answers to my questions. <laughs> I guess I enjoyed this a bit more, but it does feel like a time capsule of a time that probably didn't actually exist, and it's all a bit strange and baffling. And I don't, I don't believe a single character motivation in any of this. Dean, in terms of performance, it's 
better, but again, he seems like he's in a different film from everybody else. <laughs> you know, in particular, right at the start, when he's getting interviewed by the police and his, his parents come in and where he delivers that, you're, you're tearing me apart line. It's like, it's a good delivery, but not in that scene where everyone else is acting like a normal human being and he, for no reason, just starts screaming. It's weird. <laughs> You're tearing me apart, Lisa! Yes, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was my thought when I watched it, yes. Uh, um, I think it, it fares better over the rest of the film, um, kind of one way back side a little bit. I guess the actions that occur over the rest of it seem more in line with his performance, given it is somewhat over-the-top melodramatic in a number of places. So I suppose that fits better. It kind of scanned a bit better. But yeah, as as a film, I thought it was okay. As you've you've already mentioned, the main criticisms that just the time frame's unbelievable, the character motivations don't feel particularly believable, and I'm not sure the actual points that the film is reaching at regarding the youth of today were valid then <laughs> and they certainly don't seem like it looking back and looking from you know 60 years hence it did not seem like this was particularly truthy all that said i suppose i did enjoy it a reasonable amount but yeah it's if, if i hadn't seen it i don't think it'd be my life would be any worse off for it yeah that's it it's an it's an okay film but there are literally tens of thousands of okay films. Mm-hmm. Why is it this film and this actor that took hold like almost nobody else ever has? It can't just be since. the dreamy eyes and the hair. But yes, um, maybe it's, it is. It's good looking as Paul Walker. <laughs> yes. so. Yeah, I I don't quite get it. I mean I sort of do get in terms of character, I think James Dean's character is the one character I do get I do buy in that I mean it's called Rebel Without a Cause. And it kinda makes sense. It's like he's in a f- pretty well-off family, he's got everything he wants, and he but he's not happy and doesn't know why. And yeah, just, maybe there's mental health issues. I kind of get that. You kind of see his anguish that he's like, "I should be happy, and I'm not, and I don't know why." Yes, what is he rebelling against? What yeah, does he got? Um, but it's it's the other things that don't really fly in those regards. I guess the, the other characters. I just want to pop back to Salminio for a moment, Scott. Mm. Um, it seems really obvious to me, like from the moment he meets James Dean. Uh, well, maybe not so much in the police station, right in the opening scene. Mm. But after that, he clearly fancies him. He's clearly gay. Mm. Um, apparently, that was flew completely under the radar in 1955, and I can't work out how. It seems so obvious to me. They didn't have the gays then. <laughs> yeah, Drew Liberace yeah. flew under the radar. <laughs> yeah, I know that's a good point. Um, <laughs> I think I, I think an answer that I think I think people were of or you know a certainly an, an element maybe even a majority of people were of such a small minded uh, mindset about um, homosexuality and whatnot at the time and were so offended by it that they were just that willing to accept us. If you said if you said no, I'm not gay, you could be as camp as you wanted, and they would accept that answer purely because they didn't want to compute that you actually were. Yeah, so I think there was just this there was this willing refusal to accept it to such a degree that you could almost be openly such, and <laughs> as long as you said no, no, I'm not, people just sort of smiled, and went good. <laughs> yeah, I, I must have been not so much with the, this character film, although actually that um, that actor's career basically was torpedoed because he was alleged at least to be gay. But at the same point, 
I guess if you were, I don't know, maybe in bed with the right people, certainly knew the right people in Hollywood, even like in the press, they would keep that secret for you. Mm. It's really, really like Rock Hudson for years. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody knew that he was gay, and but I, it was an, an open secret within the industry. Mm. But people decided that to keep that from us, which would not happen nowadays. Um, well, I, I don't know. Well, maybe. <laughs> in general, though, it's, it's it's a different time. But at the same time, I still look at that, and your Liberace point is a very, very valid one. But as I, I watch this, like, that guy's clearly gay, and it's like, he clearly fancies him, because that's what I don't get. Like, don't you understand that, like, regardless of whether it's male, male, female, female, or male, female, when people fancy other people, it's kind of obvious. And it's really obvious in this film. Mm. <laughs> but people apparently didn't pick up on it or refused to pick Just, up on yeah, it. Just, yeah, blind to it, yeah. Yeah, it's so strange. We're finished with that. Uh, the ne- That was, film was released just a month after Dean's death. The next film, as I said in my introduction, just a year after that. Uh, I don't know if it got hung up in post-production or what, but a film in which he actually only had a, a supporting role in a film that's approximately 412 days long, which is giant, which I assume refers to its running time. Yes, yes I, I unwittingly gave myself the longest of these films to recap, however. It's the, also the one I have the least interest in, so I suppose that balances out somehow. The giant sees Rock Hudson's Jordan Bick Benedict Jr., owner of a large Texan ranch, make his way over to Maryland to look at a racist horse he's considering purchasing. <laughs> Sorry, race horse. It's Bick who's the racist. I apologise to horse kind everywhere. Uh, there he meets Elizabeth Taylor's Leslie Linton, soon to become Linton Benedict, as they marry and return to Texas, and we follow what they'll be getting up to over the next two generations. Back at the ranch, genteel socialite Leslie initially struggles to fit in, butting heads with Bick's sister, Mercedes McCambridge's Luz, over, amongst other things, treating these damn uselessly about Mexicans as though they're, you know, human. Uh, a ranch hand, James Dean's Jet Rink, takes an immediate fancy to Leslie, which starts or perhaps just reinforces a beef with Bick, which is promoted to full on enmity when Luz dies, leaving Rink a small plot of land inside what Bick sees as his domain. The years pass with the Benedicts raising a son and two daughters, with the joys and heartaches that that can cause, while Rink strikes oil on his plot of land, this seemingly being one of those reservoirs located two inches underneath the topsoil, and becomes wildly successful, but still left harbouring feelings for Leslie, further escalating the Rink-Benedict rivalry, all coming to a head just after the Benedict grandchildren are born. The only thing I appreciate about this film was the rare opportunity to use Back at the Ranch in a purely factual manner. <laughs> That's a little unfair. I, I don't have an awful lot in the negative column for Giant, it's just that I don't have much in the positives column either. Uh, both Hudson's and Dean's characters I find difficult to wish anything more than ill for, both being racist wank badgers or drunks or abusive, and sure, flawed characters are the essence of drama, but there's little to no redeeming characteristics or actions for either of them, or arguably in Bink's case at least until way too late, and as the balance of power between these two is the main pillar of the film, not giving a fraction of a crap about either of them rather undermines the point of the whole exercise. Of course, they, and then by extension Texan society, are clearly not being presented in a positive light by director George Stevens, that's partly the point of Leslie's character, but, well, an occasional reminder that racists are bad is isn't enough to excuse a three-hour, 20-minute epic largely being around characters that are reprehensible but not in any way interesting because the characters aren't truly examined or interrogated in any depth, or perhaps at all, really. The other pillar, the sort of love triangle, also doesn't feel very believable, coming across more as a glorified schoolboy crush that might be headed somewhere when it tilts at a relationship between Rink and one of the Benedict daughters, but that's far too late in the film and brushed past far too quickly to be of much interest. Overall, this is just dull. Not really my cup of tea in the first 
first place, but I also find it strange that a film that's so long, covering so much time, says so little about anything. It looks pretty enough. I've no real issue with any of the acting or other mechanistic aspects of the film. It's just the narrative just isn't doing much of interest to me with characters that aren't of interest to me, hence my disinterest. How this became such a huge at the time is something of a mystery to me, even with the huge amount of star power behind it. No thank you out of ten. Yes, what he said. (laughs) For a film that is as long as it is, I'm bewildered that I wasn't simply bored out of my mind through the length of it and I, yeah. I wasn't but absolutely nothing happens and there's not a single interesting character in it no which is a problem <laughs> in a drama it's not even as though there's so many characters that you couldn't give any depth to any of them it's just that there's a lot of them that just tool about not doing very much and you don't get any real insight into any of them no uh, yeah and everybody's a racist and yeah. like um, particularly not a film to watch if you're anywhere near Mexico and I assume you watch this in your own Scott yes yes Otherwise, you may have had other comments to add. Yes, I have a particular uh, sensitivity to um, certain elements of this film, yes. Yes. Oh, so dad just is like, <laughs> not just me. Because like, you're human, yeah. Yes, exactly, thank you. So say, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it just doesn't even start off well. I mean, as I alluded to in my Rebel Without a Cause review, there is no chemistry between Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor. It's like, well, I'm obviously going to fall in love with him and marry him the moment I see him effectively mm. because well he's there and has eyes and the script demands it <laughs> and then yep, they go back to Texas you find out Rock Hudson's a bit of a jackass you find out quite quickly his sister's a jackass and a racist jackass his racism takes a bit more time and then he starts talking about those people and alright okay right <laughs> so any hope I had for him was gone and then any hope I had for James Dean's character vanished about two or three days into it as well because (laughs) it starts off because one of the other themes of this film was that rich people are the worst Hmm. which they are obviously because (laughs) no matter how rich you are apparently it's never enough (laughs) and you must resent someone else getting rich when it's money you could have had even though you're already as I say incredibly rich so when James Dean's James Dean discovers his uh, his oil because Elizabeth Taylor stepped on some mud. Mm. Yeah, kids. I think even the Beverly Hillbillies was slightly more believable than that. <laughs> he comes over and he sort of tries to rub it in Rock Hudson's face. Not particularly a classy move, but you can get that. And then Rock Hudson's just like really ungracious for no good reason. Tries to fight him and then James Dean gives him a kick in it. And I was like, oh, I found that quite satisfying. He clearly had that coming. And then very quickly thereafter, you find it. oh no, he's a terrible racist and a terrible, horrible rich person as well. Mm. Everybody in this film is horrible. <laughs> and then he gets dressed up in some really terrible clothes and makeup um, and a terrible moustache and a wig, although not as bad as Rock Hudson's blue rinse, right enough. <laughs> and then every time you think there's a wee glint of hope for um, a character to be interesting or... I mean, the the one person that comes out best is probably an incredibly young-looking Dennis Hopper. Mm. But then the youngest daughter, you think, oh, she's quite spunky and maybe she's got something to do. And, oh, no, she's just a stupid little girl who fancies this rich guy and is embarrassed at her family for actually doing the right thing for once. <laughs> They're like, no. Nah. Every person in this, car- in this film is, is horrible. There are no redeemable characters. Everybody's terrible. And again, it, it's full of disappointment, too. 
And it's and again weird that I'm not getting bored by this film. But there's one bit you find out that not just is he a racist, uh, uh, Rock Hudson's character is a terrible chauvinist as well. Elizabeth Taylor gives this great impassioned speech about them being all these ridiculous Neanderthals and um, how like women can't understand politics or business despite the fact you know like I lived next to Washington DC and then I think oh great yeah you go for it girl you stand up for yourself and then like five minutes later she's upstairs apologising to him mm. and I was <laughs> shouting the television at that point it's like no what are you doing <laughs> uh, and then yeah it goes on another four or five weeks um, and nothing happens and I think I watched the, this family grow up in real time <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's strange I don't know why this was so successful. Maybe it was just released when people really couldn't afford to heat their houses. Maybe the, the <laughs> heating prices had gone up or something and cinemas were warm so everybody went. I don't know. <laughs> it's strange. And I've seen worse films. I've seen considerably more boring films, but it's just kind of empty and pointless. Yeah, is, uh, uh, I, I will forget this quite quickly. It was not neither good nor bad enough to make any kind of impact on me. I'm just puzzled that... Hmm. It's so well regarded and so barren of interest for a film yeah, this long. Nothing, nothing interesting happens with no interesting people. And this, can, if we come back to James Team is only in three films. This one is by far his smallest role because he's not the lead by any means. And yet, this was the last one that would be people's memory in terms of cinema release. Yeah. And certainly the one that would help to really kind of cement his reputation and I'm watching this thinking yeah but why what what how yeah. why it's weird is his reputation just because he photographs well yeah, is, is that uh, it? Is it yep <laughs> apparently I mean it's it's baffling and again I don't think he's a particularly good actor but he's, I've certainly seen far worse and I think I've seen enough glimpses of talent that I could put a lot of what was wrong with these performances down to poor choices either on his part or a director's part so that had he lived a bit longer I would imagine he'd been a, a fairly serviceable actor mm. but to be this incredible icon that bestrode the second half of the 20th century I don't get it <laughs> I can only consider people uh, I can only assume rather that people who are that invested in him have never actually watched the movies to be honest is the only explanation I have because I can't imagine anyone um, who holds this guy up on a pedestal or finds him to be of particular romantic interest can have watched East of Eden and not be completely turned off by the man <laughs> so yeah. there you go I, I fear we're overanalyzing him I think people are just easily sold on looks and that's probably about it yes and people are idiots Craig as we all know and I was thinking of other people who became famous around about the same time and one I'm thinking of is Marla Monroe who I find neither attractive nor even vaguely talented yet she's almost as much of an icon as him possibly mm. more in, in some regards so yeah I, I, I don't get it people are idiots that, that's, the, that's the answer to my questions you are barred from the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Well, that'll wrap us up for today then. Um, we will be back with you soon enough with another podcast, but until such a time, I'll say adieu, and I'm sure that Craig and Drew will too. Probably. Fairly well. Mm-hmm.